All right. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I hope that everybody can hear us as we're just getting going here right now. Um, my name is uh, Reed Standish. I'm Radio Free Europe's China correspondent. Um, and today we are going to be getting into an interesting conversation here, tackling a lot of big topics. Uh, we're going to be talking about China and Afghanistan and how the Taliban's August takeover has changed Beijing's game across Central and South Asia. Since the dramatic events of the summer, we've seen lots of attention turned towards China and Afghanistan and the broader region. So what does Beijing want in Afghanistan? Is it only about terrorism and going after weaker fighters? Or does China have greater ambitions? How closely can China and the Taliban work together? Are they really as close as they appear in their public statements? What lies under the surface in this complicated relationship? And finally, how does this added tension from China look to the countries in Central Asia who are adapting to the value on the ground? So with me today to dig into all this is a great group of guests uh, who will tell all of these questions and much more. So I am going to be joined by uh, Sorojitin Tolibov, who is the managing editor of Radio Free Europe's Tajik Service. I'm also joined by Nina Yao, who's affiliated with the Foreign Policy Research Institute and the OSCE Academy, and she's joining us to Kyrgyzstan. And also with Raffaello Pantucci, who is a senior fellow at RUSI, London's Royal United Services Institute, and he is joining us from Singapore. So, uh, Niva, let's start with you. I'm very curious if you can tell us uh, a little bit about China's motivations uh, in Afghanistan and where it fits into some of Beijing's wider goals in the region. Thank you, Reid, for the invitation, and thank you, everyone, for listening in. Um, so the broader rationale has always been to restrict the spaces in which members of the East Turkestan movement can operate. So in the past decades, it's been all about exporting to Central Asian governments the idea of um, Xinjiang independence only means chaos and conflicts for the region. So to make uh, governments to not support this independence movement and close down Uyghur associations, deportation of those that... Um, cross the border seeking for asylum, and this is direct, right? But indirectly, China's also done a lot um, to support the security capacity of Central Asian states. In Tajikistan, this meant a lot of military trainings and exercises, um, <clears throat> joint patrols, equipment transfer, donating cash to support salaries of military personnel, building up and also border posts on the Tajikistan-Afghanistan border because she thinks that there is some evidence showing there is uh, there are Uyghur foreign fighters in Afghanistan who can move into China. And the Chinese base in Tajikistan, uh, China calls it an anti-drug -tra trafficking post and already uh, is there for a couple of years. It's really an escalation that goes with other initiatives that China has been implementing in Tajikistan. And this takeover of... Afghanistan by Taliban has always been part of this calculation and is the, the key worry from this movement. Um, uh, the key worry is the movement of these Uyghur fighters, which right. the base in Tajikistan can provide a very quick mobilization to defend the Chinese border. Right. Thanks, David. So, I, I mean, you talked a lot about the base here. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because, I mean, that's obviously that was a topic of a story that myself and also my, my colleagues in Tajikistan at Radio Free Europe's Tajik Service, we just published a big story, you know, looking in depth at this base. And, you know, we know Chinese personnel have been there for at least five years, roughly. Um, you know, we can see through satellite images that there's been a, a buildup here over the years. You know, it's, it's growing, it's expanding. There's drones that are being used there. You know, we were told by some of our sources, you know, that China is actually effectively patrolling large sections of this border, you know, completely on its own. Um, so, I mean, do you see room for a greater expansion on China or is it is there is there a desire to keep things limited? I mean, where, where do Beijing's, I guess, ambitions really lie? 
Um, so, like I said, like all, you know, China has implemented a lot of um, security initiatives in Central Asia, and they're all escalating, no matter you know which country you look at it. Um, so, you know, we are you know with all these security coming out of Afghanistan that will impact Central Asia. Of course, um, you know, we will see more security initiatives. One thing that hasn't been you know set in stone yet, and it's been proposed by China for a couple of years now, is actually a joint center, um, an anti um, terrorism center in Dushanbe it will be run by the Chinese Ministry of Public Security um, in collaboration with the Tajik, um, the Tajik Ministry of Internal Affairs. So this will be uh, a first of its kind in, the, in terms of its overseas security uh, capacity. Um, but to what extent that has, you know, been implemented um, from what, from as far as I know, is still in the in the process of negotiation. Um, has, but um, there are definitely new initiatives that will pop up. Okay, that's interesting. So if you're just joining us, everybody, uh, I'm Rich Standish. I'm Radio Free Europe's uh, China correspondent. Um, this is um, a Twitter space talk that we're doing looking at China and Afghanistan and uh, how the Taliban's uh, recent takeover, how that changes Beijing's policies for Afghanistan, but also for Central Asia uh, in a wider region. I'm joined with uh, Rafael Pantucci and Nita Yao. Uh, my colleague, uh, Sarojin Tolibov, is having a few technical issues, so hopefully he can join us later. But for the time being, it's going to be myself and Rafael and Eva. So, Rafael, if I can, uh, you know, throw the ball over into your court. You know, Neva just talked a lot about, um, you know, Chinese ambitions, how this looks from Beijing's point of view. Um, but I'm really curious to get into that really kind of, I think, is a very strange relationship, you know, one between China and the Taliban. You know, this is obviously something that's received a lot of attention recently because it feels like such a, an odd development to see an atheistic communist government, um, you know, working with effectively religious mm. extremists. Um, but I mean, I, how, how do you explain this to people? What can you tell us about this dynamic and, and, and what's really at its heart? You know, how, how close are China and the Taliban and what's really driving them together? I mean, I think the most crude way, and you know, first of course, I should also have my thanks for the kind invitation to my first ever Twitter Spaces, and it's what a great topic and great group of people to be talking uh, to be talking to. I think you know the key thing is pragmatism. You know, I think from the Chinese perspective, they have watched as the Taliban have become the most significant security actor on the ground. Um, and, you know, they uh, share a border with this country and they have security concerns with this country. You know, in the past, uh, Uyghur militants have been in Afghanistan and have used it potentially as a base and, you know, co to cause trouble for China and to cause problems for China. So that's the kind of lens that they're looking at. It. So from their pragmatic perspective, when the old government fled and, you know, by the way, they did have a pretty strong working relationship with the old government as well. Um, you know, they thought, well, the Taliban are now in charge. We need to kind of work with them. And they look at it in that very sort of crudely pragmatic way and saying we are we, we have issues here you're the people in power there, so we will talk to you. Um, and I think from the Taliban perspective, it's in a way a similar sort of pragmatism, which instead looks at the map around Afghanistan and says, well, you know, who have we got to deal with here? And, you know, the richest and most influential neighbor that Afghanistan has is China. And so the Taliban can see that if we can develop some sort of a relationship with this power, it has all sorts of potential benefits in terms of economic investment, in terms of, you know, broader strategic goals, getting their cause, you know, they're, they're, you know, you've had the Chinese and the Russians working together to lobby to get the sanctions lifted against them. I mean, this is useful to them as a government. So I think it's an entirely pragmatic relationship from both of their perspectives. And what they're both able to do is in a way compartmentalize some of the more ideological side of their worldviews, let's say, with a focus on this very crude pragmatism. Um, you know, you, you talk a lot about this pragmatism, which, you know, obviously that's the, the, the main driver here. But I don't think we can really talk about China's aims in Afghanistan and also its relationship with the Taliban without getting into, you know, again, getting into some of what Neva was just talking about, you know, 
issues related to Xinjiang and in, uh, in Western China, and then obviously this whole issue around Uyghur fighters being based mm. in uh, in Afghanistan. You know, uh, my colleagues and I we just reported a few weeks ago about how the Taliban has uh, relocated some Uyghur militants um, who are close to the border with China, but has stopped short of handing them over to Chinese authorities. Um, you know, the Telegraph also reported a story recently about how uh, the Taliban had allegedly freed Uyghur militants from jail as the government was collapsing in August. So, um, Rafael, I mean, when we look at these these two episodes, I mean, what does that really tell us about how the Taliban will approach this issue of Uyghur fighters with Beijing, which is this this key mm. central issue for China? You know, how how mm. how reliable of a partner can can the Taliban really be for the Chinese? Well, I think what we're seeing playing out here is an awful lot of internal Taliban dynamics. Um, and from that perspective, I think we have to think about this from their perspective. And, you know, if you're the Taliban, you know, for them, the Uyghur militants who've been in Afghanistan for some time, um, you know, had been fighting alongside them. You know, these were guys who very much, whose worldview was not, it was very similar to the Taliban's. They lived under the Taliban protection when the Taliban government was in power pre 9-11. Um, and they fought and bled alongside them. So for 20 years, these guys have been fighting together. And then suddenly these guys, you know, the Taliban government comes to power. And there's a sense of, on the one hand, this kind of this, this need to appease the Chinese and keep the Chinese happy because they do have this sort of pragmatic relationship. But there's also a sense of, well, hold on a minute. Are we really just going to turn on these people who were fighting alongside us for such a long time? You know, and over 20 years, that means intermarriages. It means, you know, connections that go beyond just a kind of crude, you know, militants all fighting together in, in one direction. You know, there is a, a very close bond that's kind of formed. And it's a bond that ultimately delivered victory from their perspective. So I think within the Taliban, you've got a problem because you've got some groups who are probably influenced by, uh, you know, outside powers like Pakistan or have a sort of more willing, you know, more focused on, you know, money or are more focused on, you know, power, um, who are more willing to turn over uh, some of these Uyghur fighters. Whereas in another context, you've got a situation where individuals are like, well, actually, why should we turn them over? Maybe we can find a way of, you know, moving them. And I think this is the story that you guys uh, broke about, you know, moving them to the other side of the country is kind of trying to meet things halfway. You know, so we say we, we're not going to just hand them over to the Chinese. We're not just going to throw them under the bus um, because we have this link to them. But we're going to try to shift them around the country. I think the final thing to remember is, of course, when, you know, the Taliban didn't just have, you know, Uyghur fighters fighting alongside them. And while the Taliban are, you know, a fairly, you know, coherent organization, there are factions within it. And some of those factions have links abroad. And some of those factions are very tied to the center and others are not. And the problem, I think, for the Taliban, if they were to just turn over uh, you know, all these, uh, whatever Uyghur militants they have, potentially in areas they control, um, you know, other groups that are living under their protection that maybe are supporting them in other ways would say, well, hold on a second. They just did that to the Uyghurs. Who's to say they're not going to do that to us as well? Um, and so it might create all sorts of internal frictions. I think the absolute final point to that, and this is, of course, we have to ask the question of how much do the Taliban really control the entire country. You know, we have got stories of these pockets of resistance around the country. They seem quite limited at the moment. But, you know, we have got ISKP, which is a group which is, you know, gathering some momentum, has launched some pretty horrendous attacks. So the Taliban are in total control of their territory. And that, I think, is really the core of it. Now, from a Chinese perspective, um, I think they would look at this and they would see this complex tapestry. Um, and from their perspective, they will always push for the Taliban to do as much as they can. And that, I think, will always be where the pressure will lie. But I think there's also probably a pragmatic element within there as well, realizing, recognizing these tensions. And this is probably why we saw, uh, you know, this idea of moving people around the country potentially being a way that they thought, you know, could work. And maybe it did sort of temporarily appease the Chinese or not. I guess we have to wait and see how that one will actually play out. But, but I mean, if, if, if you're China here, I mean, obviously, this is something that happened before when the Taliban was in power, uh, you know, previously from, from 96 to, to 2001, um, this, this issue of, you know, moving around, you know, ETIM and these different groups like that. And, and you know, so to a degree, this is, you know, reliving the script that we had before. 
Um, so if you're if you're Beijing, I mean, you know, you're you're very correctly saying. I've heard this from other people as well. You know, you need to be careful if you push the Taliban too hard. You know, how much leverage and control do they really have over a lot of these groups? But um, I mean, what's the path forward? Or if you're Beijing and you're trying to you know deal with this you know vastly quickly changing situation on the ground? I think what you've seen them do is uh, you know hedge. You know, they build the relationship up with the Taliban. So they've been you know if we look at action on the ground. You know, the Chinese have been very loud in their engagement of the Taliban uh, regime. Um, they've been very supportive of them on the international stage. They've really leaned into this relationship in contrast to others. You know, for example, we look at Russia. Well, we can see that Russia did in the early days say, you know, a lot of things. But in reality, the Russians have been very cautious, uh, you know, very careful about how much they lean into this. We can see Beijing is saying, no, we're going to hug them tight. But at the same time, you know, I think behind the scenes, you're seeing a lot of pressure being put on the Taliban to try to resolve this. And also, I think crucially to this, you have not actually seen the Chinese deliver any major, you know, financial incentives or any other sort of concessions on the ground. You know, there's been talk and I hear meetings have been held between, you know, MCC, the copper, the company which is responsible for the copper project in Messinac, um, you know, which has been stalled since 2007. And the, uh, you know, CMPC, the one that was responsible for the oil uh, project in the north, uh, which again has been stalled for a few years and actually the previous government, in fact, stripped the Chinese company of it. You know, they started to engage with the Taliban government to say that we could do this. Um, the government has said we're sending aid. But if you look at the amount of aid they've sent, it was only $31 million in kind aid. So, you know, humanitarian, which is incredibly useful and important. But, you know, the American USA pledged double that amount. <laughs> you know, so the Chinese have leaned in. They've publicly embraced very tightly. But if you look at actual, you know, incentives and things that they put on the ground, um, they've still been very cautious about that. And I think that is probably the lever that they're sort of keeping in reserve, you know, if... You know, they, that's constantly there as a kind of, as, a, as you know, as a golden bucket, if you will, at the end of the rainbow, you know, that if the Taliban achieve all of these things, there is this wonderful economic munificence that can follow. But a lot has to happen in that space. And I think China's been very cautious about actually releasing all of that sort of economic investment. Right, right. All right. Wonderful. Um, if you're just joining us, I'm Rick Standen. I'm Radio for Europe's China correspondent, and I am speaking from Prague. I'm joined with Rafael Panjucci, Niva Yao, and I am happy to see that my colleague Sarojin Tolibo, uh, who is the managing editor of Radio for Europe's Tajik service, is here on the line. So, Sarojin, I'd like to turn things over to you. Um, you know, obviously, we've talked a lot about China. We've talked about Afghanistan. We're understanding the strategy here. But one key element here is also understanding, you know, the Central Asian states who, who are kind of caught in the middle here. Um, and again, going back to the story about, uh, you know, China's unofficial base in Tajikistan, um, I'm really curious to get, uh, you know, your perspective and also the kind of things that you're hearing, you know, back in Tajikistan. You know, why, why is the government, you know, giving so much room to China? What is really this relationship between Dushanbe and Beijing like? And how is it, uh, you know, changing right now um, uh, after the Taliban's takeover? Where is it headed, do you think? Um, the relationship between the two countries have been always good. I would say that you know China is helping Tajikistan, uh, Tajikistan authoritarian regime with a lot of investments. So uh, hundreds of millions of uh, dollars have been invested into the industry, into the construction business, into the uh, mining business in Tajikistan, which is the poorest country in the former Soviet Union. And um, and uh, uh, Tajikistan has always benefited from the investments and uh, largest Chinese companies are in Tajikistan. So China is not demanding from Tajik authoritarian regimes uh, human rights issues or uh, the issues linked to the abuses of power or, uh, I don't know, freedom of speech or democracy. 
that is uh, that's with them well, especially Rahman and his family. Um, on, on this regard, uh, Tajikistan is doing pretty well, um, and uh, its neighboring country construction is going, developing, flourishing. If you go to Dushanbe now, you can see as a newly built you know Dubai, uh, so many buildings are being risen. So uh, China is helping a lot. In this regard, economically, Tajikistan is very much dependent. Uh, first, uh, uh, China, uh, China's investment. Second, uh, emissions which are being sent from uh, labor migrants from Russia and Kazakhstan, for example. Uh, uh, after the collapse of uh, Ghani's uh, government in Afghanistan, of course, uh, Tajikistan um, had that for Rahman, it was a dilemma what to do. Uh, on the one hand, the intelligentsia and people wanted him uh, to raise concern regarding Tajiks living in Afghanistan, especially in Panjshir and Badakhshan. But on the other hand, uh, reality is that other neighboring countries like Kyrgyzstan or Uzbekistan has a tight relation, established good, uh, you know, understanding and good relation with the Taliban. So, but Rahman, I think, uh, decided to go uh, with the, uh, you know, the patriotic nationalistic feelings, and he decided to support uh, uh, resistance forces. Uh, and uh, uh, demanded the inclusive government. Uh, uh, I don't think that uh, uh, Rahman uh, uh, discussed this issue with uh, China. Um, uh, for China, of course, e economic development and stability in Tajikistan, and plus uh, 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 security relationship, you know, the um, uh, mutual uh, relationship on regarding extraditing Uyghur separatists uh, from Tajikistan to China, or uh, we know the cases when um, uh, Uyghur uh, nationals were extradited from Turkey as uh, Tajik citizens and Tajikistan later on handed over these uh, Uyghurs to China. So um, uh, as far as I understand, military and security cooperation uh, uh, is doing uh, pretty well. Uh, China is not influencing on Tajik Tajikistan's uh, external decisions. Um, but uh, on the other hand, uh, Tajikistan also understands that uh, the uh, the times are very tough and uh, uh, decisions on the long perspective r related to uh, Taliban has not been uh, made yet. Right. I mean, it sounds like you're saying, I mean, Tajikistan has been a very you know willing and I would almost say enthusiastic partner, whether we're talking about working with Beijing on the economic side or on the more security oriented kind of goals. But this, you know, the situation, everything that's happened in Afghanistan has obviously complicated things quite a lot. And, um, you know, you brought up the issue of, you know, extra, uh, extraditing Uyghurs, which is the, the focus of a complaint getting filed at the, the ICC right now. Um, there's obviously the issue of this base. But I mean, how, what is Tajikistan's real, real game here? I mean, obviously, things are, you know, the Tajik government is very close with Russia. Russia has uh, troops based in the country, has a you know, longstanding security presence, is linked to the CSTO, um, you know, which Putin be quite outspoken and throw his weight, uh, you know, behind Rahman and the Tajik government, especially as these tensions have risen between the Taliban and Dushanbe. So, I mean, what, what's, how does the Tajik government, government navigate this? And then also, I'm kind of curious if you can talk a little bit about, you know, beyond Tajikistan. I mean, how does the rest of Central Asia see this, this what's going on? Uh, let's start with the uh, other Central Asian republics. Uh, uh, Uzbekistan, uh, you know, has been holding talks with the Taliban. Even the Taliban uh, came to power uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, last year, they invited uh, all key leaders of the Taliban to Tashkent, and then they hosted them in Bukhara and Samarkand. You know, um, they uh, gave presents like golden robes. 
it was inevitable that uh, Tashkent was going to please um, uh, Taliban. They may thought that uh, one day Taliban may come to power, and it happened. And immediately after that, uh, Uzbekistan was the first government who congrat uh, the Taliban government congratulated Uzbekistan on, on Independence Day. And uh, you know, it's, uh, ambassadors, um, missionaries are coming to Uzbekistan, and uh, Uzbek officials are also going to Afghanistan. So uh, Uzbekistan's approach is more pragmatic. They want to, uh, you know, build uh, its landlocked country, double landlocked country. So they want to go uh, to reach the uh, shores, o ocean via Afghanistan and Pakistan. That's the uh, easiest and uh, the shortest way. Um, uh, stability is required and a good relation with the regime. So whoever comes to power, Fatashke, it doesn't matter at the moment, as uh, Taliban promised, you know, uh, uh, that, uh, that there will be no threat from the Taliban or other forces from Afghanistan to uh, Uzbekistan. So after these uh, strong insurances, Uzbekistan is very keen and you know, so they have already sending uh, building materials as it was during Ghani's time. Uh, and uh, I think Uzbekistan's approach is much different than Tajikistan. Uh, Tajikistan's uh, problems, uh, it is, of course, an ethnic problem. Uh, uh, Tajik uh, government believes that, you know, uh, minorities like Tajik's uh, rights are being oppressed. So uh, the government is not inclusive. And many Tajiks believe that Tajiks are not minority in Afghanistan. They are majority. So these uh, you know, discussions are going on on uh, social media. Uh, Kyrgyzstan, also officials from Kyrgyzstan went to Kabul, met uh, with the Taliban of officials that was also uh, you know a source of concern for the Tajik authorities because of the you know cool relationship between uh, Bishkek and Dushanbe after that conflict which occurred uh, prior uh, Taliban came to power uh, earlier this year and um, uh, uh, Tajik authorities believe that uh, this is a very bad fan, uh, uh, sign as uh, Bishkek who is considered as enemy uh, or uh, let's say it's a very bad friend uh, is uh, uh, you know holding talks with with the enemy Taliban. So the enemy of my enemy is uh, you know is my friend. That's the right. Right. Again, uh, getting into this, this these pragmatic you know yes, dynamics. Yes. That are happening here, uh, right? But yeah. yes, and uh, as of, as of uh, Dushanbe, uh, for Dushanbe, Dushanbe, uh, when it comes to the security, always rely on uh, Russia. Uh, but when it comes to the investments, of course, Russia is not keen to invest. Uh, uh, to Tajikistan very much. So China, without doubt, is the biggest investor. Uh, Tajikistan always wanted to be with the West, in fact, but uh, they are forced to stay with uh, with China and Russia in this regard. Okay, okay. Well, thank you. Um, if, if you're just joining us, I'm uh, Reid Standish. I'm a Radio Free Europe's China correspondent. We're just entering the, the home stretch of our talk today. We have about 10 minutes left. Um, so I'm going to... Um, let everyone know listening to us. If you, I see that there's some uh, some really smart people uh, who are in the chat. Um, so if you have a question, if you have something that you'd like to ask, um, apparently you can. Um, there's a request icon that should be just below your microphone, and through that, um, it's sort of like raising your hand on Zoom or something like that. And uh, you can then be unmuted by the by the moderator, and we can ask a question. So maybe I'm gonna let everybody who wants that can uh, can raise their hand, and then in the meantime, I'm going to. 
you know, pose a question over to Neva that we can get talking while maybe some questions come in. You know, Neva, there's been a lot of attention talking about, um, you know, especially when the Taliban first took over, the way that the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan happened, that this was, a, you know, a big opportunity for China globally, and but especially in the region, you know, there was a lot of attention paid to investments, uh, you know, talking about, you know, China having a strategic foothold in this country where the West uh, just left. But I mean, I'm, I'm very curious from, from the Chinese point of view, I mean, is Afghanistan an opportunity? Um, I think Raphael earlier already covered quite some um, important points, but I would just um, add one point, which is the fact that Taliban is and will be the most difficult um, partner for China to work with. Because if we think about it, China's kind of most preferred stra strategy of is economic. Um, and with the Taliban, you know, China is not able to use this economic leverage at all. Um, you know, a lot of the Chinese scholars in China, they are, you know, one saying that, you know, uh, they're urging, actually, the Chinese government to not trust whatever Taliban says because they're not true to their words. Second is they are saying that economic development and improving livelihood is not Taliban's priority. And these are Chinese scholars who have worked on Afghanistan and on Central Asia for years and years. And this is what they are saying to the Chinese policymakers. Um, so the fact that, you know, this, you know, the policy space has this view that the Taliban's priority is whether or not the political regime and the way of life is Islamic, this poses the most difficult challenge for China because, you know, the view is that it, it would be impossible for the Taliban to truly cut ties with uh, international terrorist groups and the East Turkestan movement. And of course, you know, the points that Rafael mentioned, they also play a part, you know, the local bonds and the relationships. But um, from a very ideological point of view, they, you know, it, the Taliban would just, the, the, the Chinese view is that the Taliban would not cut ties with this group. And um, in that sense, you know, China has to, you know, figure out a way to kind of contain all the overspill of risks and threats that are, you know, towards Central Asia and towards China from Afghanistan. And so far, this has been kind of containing the security threats um, kind of along the border, you know, this encirclement. And China, you know, wants to do this by having uh, kind of a regional effort and a regional consensus of how to deal with refugees and directing all these other issues. Okay. Um, uh, again, if anybody has any questions, uh, please request to have your, your mic unmuted and uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, Raffaello, um, you know, there's obviously yeah. we talked a lot about, about security. We're talking a lot about, uh, you know, the, the phrase that always comes up is weaker militants, weaker fighters. But obviously mm -hmm. what that actually means in practice is something that's kind of ambiguous and has some different definitions depending on, on, on who you're asking, and also the, the actual number of people um, mm. who would qualify as weaker militants, especially in Afghanistan, it's something that's quite ambiguous as well. You know, there was this uh, UN Security Council report from uh, from last year, which said there's about, you know, 500 uh, fighters believed to be in Afghanistan. You know, you talk to some analysts, you talk to some governments, you know, it's, it's far lower than that. So, I mean, how can there be, if you're China, to have like-minded partners and you're trying to deal with these security issues but given that there's you know so much kind of like uh ambiguity and and just like a, a lack of agreement about what this this is there a threat is it real so i'm kind of curious about you know how, how you view this issue and what that the difficulties that that presents for the chinese i mean look i uh, i would say what a you know country <laughs> or what a threat is that easily quantifiable if we look at threats globally you know what i mean groups terrorist groups in particular you know by their very nature are organizations that are secret that are discreet that are avoiding uh, the limelight and so understanding exactly their size and scope i mean that's a lot of what governments are trying to do and they're constantly trying to mitigate against it so i would argue that this probably echoes an awful lot of what you'd see in other contexts as well um, but i think if we just focus on the particular one of the week i think the complexity that the chinese face 
is that you've got a lot of actors on the ground um, who on the one hand are saying, yes, we're going to do something about this, but on the other hand, are probably not, and in some cases might actually be exacerbating the very problems you're dealing with. And this whole region is riven with rivalries. You know, you've got the India-Pakistan relationship, which we haven't really touched upon here, but it plays out in dynamics in Afghanistan all the time. India, of course, is a power that is an adversary of China in some contexts, also works very closely with China in another context. You know, the Indians and Chinese did counterterrorism exercises together under SEO uh, relatively recently. So, you know, you've got that relationship. So who are they supporting on the ground and who are they fighting against and who are they actually doing something about? And who is actually sort of controlling these groups? So those sorts of complicated relationships is the environment that the Chinese are having to try to navigate in much the same way as everyone else's. But I think the problem from the Chinese perspective is they've never really tried to navigate these um, to deliver an outcome that they want um, before. And they're trying to take it on in a context which is incredibly complicated, where these kind of proxy fights have been going on for decades. Um, and so, you know, this is, the, this is the complicated part for the Chinese. How do they navigate this? And how do they, you know, ensure the outcomes that they want um, when you're dealing with an inherently unstable and opaque and frankly fluid situation where relationships on the ground are constantly shifting and growing? Um, I think they've got a basic sense that there is a potential threat from Uyghurs that could emanate from Afghanistan. And that remains their sort of constant talking point. But then I also think they're worried about the possibility of instability in Afghanistan more broadly, impacting Central Asia and Pakistan and destabilizing that entire region. And if the entire region becomes destabilized, well, that's, you know, China's Western neighborhood essentially suddenly becoming incredibly unstable. And that will be an incredibly difficult thing to manage. So I think the threats that they perceive are quite broad and wide in that direction. Um, and I think the complexity is how do you manage it? You know, previously, the Chinese were very good at basically just outsourcing this risk and concern. So they would rely on Pakistan or they would rely on whoever's in power in Kabul to do that. But as the Chinese have sort of grown in stature and become a much bigger power themselves, they're no longer necessarily as, as happy to sort of outsource that uh, responsibility to others and want to make sure that they can actually do it themselves. But that is not an easy thing to do. <laughs> you know, we've watched right, the Americans right. have failed to do this repeatedly. Everyone finds it very hard. So, you know, it, it's, it's not an easy task that they're taking on. Definitely. Um, okay, I see that we have um, two speakers on here. So um, let's open to, uh, I believe it says your name is King, but if you could unmute yourself, introduce, your, uh, introduce yourself, and then also, um, you know, if you have a question addressed to a particular speaker, let us know. You can speak now. You should be, oh no, okay, we lost them, but I see someone else, uh, Lee. If you can, uh, you have a question for us, please let us know. Uh, unmute yourself and uh, let us know uh, what's on your mind. Uh, thank you. My name is Leif and I'm a journalist in Sweden, based in Sweden, Stockholm, at Swedish television, public service uh, television. Uh, I, I'm interested in, in maybe I missed uh, or I came in a little uh, late, but what, what is the outcome you think? Uh, China want in this uh, cooperation with uh, Afghanistan. What, what is what, what? What can we find out in, in the in what they have said and not said in what in the strategy at the strategy level? What what do they want out of this? Okay, great question. Uh, Diva, do you mind popping in and 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 answering that? Also, Raphael, I think your mic is still on. Oh, sorry. But I, I, I'd love to chime in after Nina as well, sorry. Okay, well, I guess ladies first. Um, so I think, you know, off the bat, like the most important thing for, you know, you know what China is looking forward to is for Tajikistan to solve whatever um, disagreement currently it has with the Taliban, because China has been calling for a regional consensus for the longest time. Um, so this, of course, you know, China will see. And to be honest, China is not too afraid of working with the Taliban. If um, Taliban decide to, you know, have 
you know, actual stability and can get, you know, unity within Taliban and, uh, you know, pledge more promises towards, um, you know, economic development in Afghanistan. I think this would be, you know, something that China would love to see. But then, of course, at the moment, you see Taliban members coming out and saying that they do care about economic development, but, you know, they're not really following through so you know this is the best option um for china this is the best scenario for china but of course you know none of these things china can actually push for and that's the um and, and that's the problem here that rafael was saying um you know china don't really have any instruments and and you know is um so right now it's, it's all you know watching and seeing and then trying to you know have dialogue with some central asian actors to see um how they can change the mind of tajikistan right all right well rafael i know you wanted to chime in there what what else could you add off of uh, nifa's answer I mean, look, I think uh, I think she captured it pretty well, frankly. The only uh, point I'd maybe add would be to pour a little bit of cold water on some of the, because uh, I'm, I'm kind of reading into the question a bit here, but people often say, well, the Chinese really are looking at the wonderful economic opportunities that exist in Afghanistan. And the point I'd make there is this is an incredibly underdeveloped country. <laughs> you know, there is nothing going on there in terms of infrastructure. And so all of these wonderful economic opportunities that we see talked about sometimes are a bit overplayed, to be honest. Even the projects China's tried to do, the companies have struggled because it's a very difficult operating environment and it hasn't got any easier. So I think the point we should focus on here when we're thinking about what does China really want from this situation is I think a lot of what we've discussed, which is basically worrying about security, which is basically worrying about sort of influence and control if it can in this backyard. The economics from their perspective is probably way down the road. And I think what they will use it more as is a kind of carrot to dangle uh, to get the Taliban or others to sort of work alongside them. All right, great. Uh, Leif, I hope that we answered your question there. Um, I'm going to open the floor over to another question here Thank from uh, Bashir Ahmad. Um, Bashir, could you please uh, you know, introduce yourself, let us know where you're coming from, and uh, also what you'd like to know. Uh, well, thank you so much. This is Bashir Ahmad. I am a former government employee of Afghanistan, CEO of Anti-Corruption Commission there, before the Taliban. Uh, I, I used to work under the Republic flag, so there is no more Republic, though I'm not uh, currently Islam, but I, 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 I was really uh, familiar with the issue of um, uh, Hajigak and the oil issue with the China, and I was very close circle with them because I worked with the presidential. I, I used to work with the presidential palace of Afghanistan, so I have a very deep information of how China is going on there. But the question of mine is that when you see within Afghanistan and Taliban, especially the Emirat Islam, you have a division there. You know, you have a team in division that they are. Some of those teams are in favor of China, and some of those teams are not in the favor of China, in the favor of China, as, as our respected guests have. Uh, spoke about it, but my most concern about is that there is one issue when it comes to uh, Taliban and how they govern the country, and there is another issue that how people would react to those economical approach of China. Because if you walk through Hajikak, uh, 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 then there is Hazaras who is controlling the territory there. So if there is another response, and I was wondering if what would you our respected guests would think of that? What would because the, China is not involving themselves directly, what shoulder would they lean on to support these issues through uh, humanitarian aid or whether it comes to how they would appear economical and political situation within the, through the people of Afghanistan, because that's the most important thing. You have to have the support of the government plus the support, the support of those people that they live there. And the majority is not happy with the approach of China there when it comes to common people and common grounds. Okay, well, I'll open it up. Thanks a lot for your question. Um, I don't know if uh, any of uh, Raffaello's, Erosion, Neva, I mean, is, do you guys want to, who, who wants this one? I'm happy to have a go, uh, though I think I saw Neva just clicking under her as well, but I, I, I'll just offer some very brief reflections. I think that the problem you've articulated, Bashir, is one that the Chinese encountered in lots of other contexts as well. 
and they are trying to learn. I think if you look at sort of what Chinese investment used to look like, it was very state level driven. So they would go to the capital, they would sign the agreement, and then they'd say, okay, now we can deliver the project. But what they discovered was a lot of countries that they're operating, um, that the government remit only stretched so far <laughs> and was unable sometimes to impose itself in some context. And this left them in a situation where they thought they had a deal, they went out to implement the project, and then on the ground, those local communities like, well, hold on a second, I know nothing about this deal. And by the way, the capital is nowhere nearby, and we control our own territory, thank you very much. And so they had a pushback. And so what you've seen is these Chinese companies have learned about how to try to engage and co-op some of these local communities. And they have tried to varying degrees of success. My understanding in Afghanistan around Messina was it was a bit of a disaster, in part because the Chinese company thought that the uh, central government was going to be the one, you know, giving people compensation for land that was taken away and some of the other things. But then the company also failed to deliver some infrastructure things they said they do. So, you know, but they are aware of this and they are trying to do that. But it does come down an awful lot to the company, you know, willingness uh, and desire uh, to actually push ahead with the project and see that it's really viable in the longer term. And I think in, in some of the projects in Afghanistan, that's the part where I think the company's really begun to wonder. And so as a result, they haven't really done any of these other things. But what we've seen in other contexts is they have been quite clever about finding ways around to try to engage with local communities because they've encountered this problem in, in a number of different contexts before. I mean, Niva's just done an excellent paper looking at um, uh, Central Asia um, and I think some of the examples she was highlighting, there was exactly examples of where the local authorities have been able to push back and get the kind of uh, get the Chinese companies to change their behavior and actually engage the locals in, in, a, more, in, a, in a way that benefits them as well. Uh, Neva, can you, I know you maybe had something to add on here. If you have something to say quickly um, uh, on this topic, I'd be curious to hear about it. Yeah, I mean, like this, um, you know, economic kind of China-led economic development in Afghanistan, you know, is, is, is a bit like a fantasy, right? We are talking about it here as the best scenario for China, but it's still a bad uh, place for China because, like Raphael said, it's not going to be easy operating in Afghanistan. And we are only talking about infrastructure here because with that infrastructure, there's no mining, there's no industrialization, nothing. So we are talking about, like, roads and electricity transmission lines. And when we talk about these infrastructure projects, one of the biggest problems uh, with Afghanistan you know, going forward is the fact that if China goes in and with poor relations between Taliban and the rest of the world, there will not be international multilateral banks to support these projects, which means that China will go at it alone with state loans and state-owned companies. And what this means is that, you know, we are bringing in Chinese standards to uh, Afghanistan. We are bringing in, you know, uh, all these other uh, issues that are affiliated with state Chinese state loans in other parts of the world, like corruption and environmental uh, um, pollution. And uh, the worst of all is the um, interest of Chinese workers into Afghanistan because, you know, frankly speaking, there are very low uh, industrial capacity in Afghanistan. You know, China cannot hire Afghans because there are no Afghans who have the necessary skills to be hired. So China is going to have to bring in thousands and thousands of Chinese workers. And this will be this will be foundational to the uh, local kind of uh, anti-China sentiment. And, you know, in Central Asia, we have seen this in the past 20 years. You know, the arrival of these workers have sparked all sorts of different anti-China sentiment. And, uh, but of course, uh, recently, like Raphael said, like, thanks for, you know, the, the, the you know, the, what is that called? Um, a little Shut plan you know, for that paper. Um, you know, the localization that China, the Chinese have done in Central Asia has been, you know, a lot. There's a lot of training programs for the staff and there's a lot of efforts to gain a social license. And if China can keep this up and actually introduce this to Afghanistan off the bat, this might solve the problem. But still, we're talking about, you know, very difficult situations and, and, and frankly, just lack of uh, understanding on Afghanistan to begin with. The different uh, uh, kind of dynamics between Taliban and just different regions and different uh, cities in, in Afghanistan. We're talking about the Chinese will have a very difficult time in navigating all of this. Right. It's a, a lot of uh, incredibly complex stuff on the ground. Um, 
But sure, I hope uh, we answered your question there. I know we have two we have two last questions before we're going to end this conversation, which is great. I'm glad that the, they've been coming in. So I'm going to turn over uh, Kubat, who is my colleague from our Kyrgyz service. Um, I see that you have a question. So the floor is yours. And please introduce yourself and uh, let us know what you're thinking. Thank you very much, Fritz. My name is Kubat Kasambekov. Uh, I'm from our Ferals Kyrgyz service. And first of all, thank you very much for the insightful discussion. And my question is probably for you, Rafaela. Uh, as you have indicated, uh, compared to Western countries, China is in a way standing beside the Taliban. And what kind of impact might China's attitude towards the Taliban have on the stance of Central Asian countries when it comes, comes to dealing or working with the Taliban government might China impose its attitude on the region, given its rising influence? Thank you. Rafael, um, just for time constraints, if you can try to keep this into a one minute, minute and a half kind of answer here. Will do. I, I can be compact to talk quickly. I think that, you know, I think what will end up happening is uh, I hear rumors that the Chinese are already lobbying a bit uh, in terms of the local governments to get them to try to come on board and, you know, support the stance that they're taking. But I think that the Chinese are probably alone in, in the stance that they ultimately want to see play out, which is basically a recognition of the government and a realization that it's kind of a reality on the ground. And to be honest, I'm not sure that diverges vastly from what a lot of the other areas in the region, Central Asia in particular, are doing. I mean, the Turkmen have leaned in very heavily. Uh, the Uzbeks, as we've discussed, have leaned in quite heavily to the Taliban. Um, the Tajiks are kind of the outliers in this context. And while the Russians have been hesitant, they're still inviting them to Moscow to engage. So I think the general mood in the region is that the Taliban are a reality. We need to deal with the reality that's in front of us. Um, and I think that's China. So I don't know that China will actually have to really impose its view in that direction a huge amount. All right, uh, Kubat, I hope we answered your question, and thanks a lot, Raphael. I see we have uh, one more question here. Uh, Tom, uh, the floor is yours. Please introduce yourself and uh, let us know uh, what you'd like to know from the panel. Hey, Tom O'Connor from Newsweek here. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, we can hear you well. Okay, brilliant. I'll try to make it quick. So I'm Tom O'Connor from Newsweek, senior foreign policy writer. I jumped in a little late, but I heard there was some discussion before about the uh, the, the idea of Uyghur militants involved potentially in Afghanistan. So uh, I apologize if we're going over anything, but I just kind of want to take that a little more specifically for a piece I'm writing. Um, um, what I'm asking specifically is, is there concern, especially to China, um, of the idea that Uyghurs could be recruited by ISIS in Afghanistan, given the recent attacks? And I also extend that to some other separatist groups, such as um, from Balochistan and stuff, given the uh, identities, or at least the claimed identities, of the recent attacks in uh, Afghanistan. Thank you. Um, I'm going to open the floor up. I mean, who, uh, which, who would like to take this one? Neva, Raffaello, Sorosian, anybody? This screams like a Raphael question to me. <laughs> All right, Raphael, you're, you're getting your money's worth today. Let's I am indeed. Uh, thank you. Uh, no, thank you for the question. And thank you. Look, I think that um, I think that, that attack in Kunduz was very interesting in terms of the claim that ISIS put out. It's the first time we've seen uh, Al-Wiguri used as a kind of kunya, um, and it was clearly a signal. But i got to say, I, I, think, I think the Chinese are probably very worried about this because increasingly across the region, they're being targeted. And, and we may say, oh, that's always been happening. Well, actually, it hasn't really. You know, if you go back and look, there were specific groups in Pakistan that have long targeted the Chinese. They were mostly separatists. Islamists tended to get the Chinese by accident. Um, and even in, in, in Afghanistan, there was always some dispute about who was actually, you know, when you saw attacks linked to it, you know, the Chinese weren't really the targets. The targets were the Westerners, you know, the evil Westerners who were supporting the sort of apostate regimes. And increasingly now you can see across the region, 
there's a broader range of groups that are kind of against the state or, you know, a militant, some are, you know, ISIS type terrorists, others are, you know, separatists uh, in, in different regions where the Chinese have increasing influence. You know, they're all kind of turning on China and they're talking about China as a target specifically. And I think that's the kind of thing and that's been building for some time. And I think this is going to be a bigger problem for China going forwards as they kind of replace, you know, the United States as the big power in the neighborhood. And so, you know, no one likes the big guy, right? <laughs> you know, and so they all will fight back on it. And I think that's what China's increasing in a find. And I think the attack in, uh, in Kunduz was an articulation of that. Um, I think the attack in Kunduz was also a specific e effort by IS to peel off uh, groups from the Taliban. I think we discussed earlier this fragmentation, I think, within the Taliban, what to do with Uyghurs. Well, clearly, those who are maybe more inclined to support the Uyghur cause would look at what the Taliban are talking about doing, which is turning people over to China, and say, this is horrendous. We should be doing this, so we've got to resist this. And so, in a way, that was kind of a way of signaling to those people to peel some of them off to maybe go and join um, the, um, uh, uh, the IS or other groups um, by sort of setting themselves up as the guys who are anti-China on the ground. Thank you so All much right. for that. Um, thanks a lot, Raphael. All right, folks, Thank unfortunately, uh, we are out of time. So I want to say before, um, before I offer my great thanks to our awesome panel, um, if you had a question and we didn't have time to get to you, please, you can send a DM to the Ready for Europe Twitter account, and we can find a way to either deal with it um, in a future Twitter space conversation, or also um, it's something that I can tackle in the China and Eurasian newsletter that I run for Radio Free Europe. Um, so there's a lot of ways to uh, to get your questions answered. Just uh, don't be shy about reaching out. You can also send me a DM if you uh, would prefer to do that. So on that note, I want to thank everybody for, for tuning in and listening to our conversation and also for being such an engaged audience. And of course, um, I want to thank my, my three guests, Rafael Pantucci, Soroshin Tolibov, and Nita Yao for um, a really insightful discussion. And um, thanks a lot, everybody. Um, we will hopefully be writing some of these in the future. And so please be on the lookout. Uh, we'd love to have you joining. Thanks a lot for your questions. And um, yeah, we will talk soon. Have a great day, uh, good night, and good morning, depending where you are in the world. Thank you. All the best. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Bye.